the premiere episode of Age of Ancients. This week's segment, we're discussing ancient Egypt, the land of mummies and golden treasures that has captivated the world for thousands of years. Buckle up for a journey through history as we explore the pyramids, dive into the conflicts, and learn about the people that made it all possible. Egypt was one of the greatest civilizations of the ancient world, spanning over 3,000 years. From the archaic period of 3100 through 2686 BC, Egypt developed into two separate kingdoms, one to the north, known as Lower Egypt, and one to the south, known as Upper Egypt. This backward-seeming naming stems from the fact that the Nile River flows from south to north. It is one of the only rivers in the world to do so. Therefore, upriver, or south, is Upper Egypt, and downriver, or north, is Lower Egypt. The pre-dynastic period saw the unity of these two kingdoms into the ancient Egyptian civilization. This was accomplished by King Menes, also known as King Narmer. The Narmer palette is a stone tablet that depicts the first pharaoh unifying Egypt, shown in what would become a traditional pose for the pharaohs, a pose of smiting his enemies. Egypt was built on a strong central government, with the ultimate authority as the pharaoh, who was worshipped as a living god. Below the pharaoh were the class of priests, which kept alive ancient Egypt's intricate religion in lavish temples devoted to the various gods. The Old Kingdom rose with the city of Memphis in Lower Egypt as the center of political and religious power, the once independent states now known as gnomes and united under the central government. Ra, the sun god, was principal deity at this time. Despite the harsh desert heat, the Egyptians knew it was the sun that brought all life to their land, and hence the sun was held in higher esteem than all the other gods. It was the sun that allowed their crops to grow and that lit their days. And it was the sun, along with the Nile River, that made the Old Kingdom possible. The Old Kingdom itself is commonly known as the Age of Pyramids, and it would span the time period between 2686 and 2181 BC. The Pyramids of Giza from this time are the only modern survivors of the seven ancient wonders of the world. To build such fantastic monuments required a strong central government and highly organized labor force which was unprecedented at that time in history. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Egypt didn't begin with the Great Pyramids at Giza. It didn't even begin with any pyramids at all. The Old Kingdom, was considered to be the start of the ancient Egyptian civilization, began with the Third Dynasty. Kings were interned in tombs long before the pyramids. These tombs were known as mastabas and were crafted from mud brick. Djoser was the first pharaoh to have a pyramid, his chief architect, Imhotep, revolutionized construction. Imhotep decided he wanted his pharaoh's tomb to be as immortal as the pharaoh's ka, or soul. He thus chose his building material to be stone, which is far more durable than mud brick. Furthermore, Imhotep wanted to build a true monument to signify his pharaoh's greatness, and thus came up with a design of stacking multiple mastabas on top of each other to create Djoser's Step Pyramid. Imhotep surrounded this pyramid with a complex of temples dedicated to the worship of the pharaoh, even in death. The Egyptians believed the pharaoh's soul would remain strong even after passing away, so long as people remained to worship and give offerings and sacrifices. This caused the formation of specialized cults of priests, whose job was to worship the deceased pharaoh in the pyramids surrounding funerary complexes. This design of a central pyramid with surrounding temples, pioneered by Imhotep, would be used for all future pyramids and even inspire the funerary architecture of the New Kingdom after pyramids had been abandoned. Sneferu, the first king of the Fourth Dynasty, was the first pharaoh to build a true, or in other words, not-step, pyramid. 
However, his very first pyramid that he attempted was a step pyramid, and it is famously known as the Collapsed Pyramid. As the name would suggest, this was an engineering failure. It was based off of Imhotep's design, but the builders had strayed from some of his instructions. The outer casing of the pyramid was built on a sand foundation rather than bedrock, causing it to collapse into rubble either during construction or shortly afterwards. Sneferu's next pyramid was the first true pyramid. A true pyramid is a pyramid with angling sides rather than steps. If you look at the pyramids of Giza today closely, you might be fooled into thinking they're step pyramids because of the large, blocky inclines. However, those pyramids were once covered with a fine casing of polished limestone that made the sides completely smooth. That limestone was later stripped off in antiquity in order to build the modern city of Cairo. But again, we haven't quite reached Giza yet. We're still with Sneferu, with his second pyramid and the first true pyramid in all of Egypt. Even though this was the first true pyramid, it still ended up being a failure. The workers had begun to build the pyramid at a 55 degree angle. About halfway up, they realized that this was too steep and would cause a similar disaster to the first pyramid, with the siding sliding off. To try and fix their mistake, they shifted the angle to a 48 degree one. However, this gave the pyramid a bent appearance, thus leading it to be called the Bent Pyramid. Sneferu did not settle for this failed construction project either, and went on to build the Red Pyramid. This one was finally a success, built on a solid bedrock foundation with a stable 43 degree slope and encased in polished white limestone. It was the first ever successful true pyramid. Even with this success, it is debated if Sneferu was ever buried in the Red Pyramid. Archaeologists have found no signs of a burial, although this could be due to tomb robbers stripping the pyramid dry. Sneferu isn't only notable for his pyramids, however. In order for the construction of the pyramids to be possible, he had to be a strong leader that commanded a central, well-organized government. A fragment of stone known as the Palermo Stone contains inscriptions detailing his successful military exploits in Nubia, Libya, and the turquoise mines of the Sinai, which remained a valuable resource to Egypt up until the civilization's collapse. Khufu, son of Sneferu, did not live in the shadow of his father's legacy. He is known for building the Great Pyramid, the first pyramid of the famous three pyramids at Giza, and the biggest pyramid ever constructed. Its base is 755 feet wide on each side, its height is 481 feet, and is composed of 6.5 million tons of stone. It was the tallest structure in the world for 3,800 years, until the construction of the Lincoln Cathedral in England in 1311. To build such a massive structure required a massive workforce. This workforce was not composed of slaves, as the popular myth claims it to be. Rather, the majority of the workers were Egypt's farmers. Ancient Egypt was only possible due to the River Nile. This of course brought water to the otherwise arid desert, but it did more than this. For two months of the year, the Nile flooded, depositing rich, fertile soils on its banks. It was thanks to this soil that Egypt became an agricultural powerhouse, growing more crops than they needed and thus allowing them to flourish in trade, the arts, crafts, and bureaucracy. This two-month flooding cycle meant that for two months out of the year, Egypt's farmers had no work to do. So, they enlisted to help build the pyramids, temples, and other monuments in exchange for wages, being fed, and promised favor by the gods. To support such a workforce, the Giza Plateau is not only a city of the dead, but also of the living. Among the many tombs and around the pyramids there was housing for workers, breweries, factories to construct their tools, shops, temples, and the homes of priests. 
However, such massive construction projects were not possible with only a two-month workforce. Professional quarry workers cut stones for the construction projects year-round. Then, come the two-month flooding period, the farmers would load the stones onto barges, ferry them along the Nile to the construction site, and drag the stones on sledges across pathways made with planks, the way eased by water poured over said planks. Miraculously, not a single pyramid was built with the use of the wheel, whose invention hadn't reached Egypt. Stones were dragged into place in a spiral ramp built into the pyramid, then filled in with more stones upon the pyramid's completion. To add to the engineering marvel that is the Great Pyramid, the sides face the four cardinal directions and the corners are near-perfect 90-degree angles. The design for the pyramids is thought to invoke the primordial mound of the Egyptian creation myth, known as the Ben-Ben, which rose from the waters of chaos at the beginning of creation and from which all life has sprung. Other than the building of this magnificent monument, Egypt prospered under Khufu's reign. He succeeded in military campaigns against Nubia and Libya, and fostered many trade agreements with various city-states around Egypt. It was during his reign that the world's earliest known dam was built, further boosting Egypt's agriculture. After Khufu's death, he was briefly succeeded by his son, Dejidefri, who built a pyramid that was later destroyed in Roman times to be used as building material in Roman projects. Dejidefri's legacy is being the first pharaoh to associate themselves with the sun god Ra, taking on the title Son of Ra, which was passed down to future pharaohs. This is built off an earlier concept established in the Second Dynasty that had declared the pharaoh as a living god. After Dejidefri's short reign, his brother, Khafre, took the throne. He built the Second Pyramid at Giza, which is also the second largest pyramid in the world. Furthermore, he built the Great Sphinx, which was carved from solid bedrock and is the largest monolithic statue in the world. Khafre's pyramid is technically 10 feet shorter than his father's, although it appears taller due to being built on higher ground. Unlike the other pyramids, whose fine polished limestone casing was stripped off entirely in antiquity, a small bit of this casing remains in the top of Khafre's pyramid. Khafre followed the footsteps of earlier pharaohs in associating himself with Horus, the god thought to be the living embodiment of the pharaoh. In death, the pharaoh was believed to become Horus's father, Osiris, king of the underworld. Khafre also followed his father's governmental policies of placing power in the hands of close family members. As pharaoh and a living god himself, he was tasked with the most important role in Egypt, interpreting the will of the gods. Unlike in the reign of his father, that role began to slip ever so slightly. While Khafre was still the ultimate authority on matters concerning the gods, the priesthood was gaining in power, which would foreshadow events leading to the end of the Old Kingdom. Menkare, Khafre's son, succeeded him. Like his father and grandfather, he built a pyramid at Giza, the smallest of the three. Its smaller size is due to the Old Kingdom's decline. The resources that Khufu used to build his Great Pyramid were no longer available in Menkare's time. This pyramid was still a massive undertaking, but the power over the funerary complex was slipping from the hands of the pharaohs to the priests that maintained said complexes. Menkare's son died before him, upsetting the succession of the throne, and Menkare himself died before his pyramid was complete. Its construction was finished by his successor, Shepseskaf, who himself was buried in a far more modest mastaba, further highlighting the decline of the pharaoh's power. Shepseskaf's reign marked the end of the fourth dynasty, and thus the end of the Golden Age of the Pyramids. Sneferu may have been the first to associate his dynasty with the god Ra, but it was Dejidefri that lessened that association to the pharaoh as a son of Ra, allowing the priesthood to grow in power across the fifth and sixth dynasties. The fifth dynasty is known as the Dynasty of the Sun Kings, since so many featured Ra's name within their own. The first king of the fifth dynasty was Usurkov, 
who constructed a temple of the sun. This further weakened the pharaohs, as now the people could worship the gods directly through such temples, rather than relying on the pharaoh as mediator between the gods and people. This then placed even more power into the hands of the priesthood. Usterkov's son and successor, Sohore, had some success in his establishing the first trade route to the land of Punt. Punt would become an important source of trade for the rest of ancient Egyptian history. Sohore was also the first to use the palmiform columns that have become a famous part of ancient Egyptian architecture, although regrettably he used these columns in his own temple to the sun, following in his father's footsteps of elevating the priesthood while weakening the pharaoh's power. A string of successors saw the priesthood growing in power and the royal treasury diminishing, up until the last two pharaohs of the 5th dynasty. The Jedkare Isesi was second to last of the pharaohs of the 5th dynasty. He reformed the bureaucracy in an attempt to curb the priesthood's rising power. He rejected the now traditional practice of building a temple to the sun god and reduced the number of priests required to man the temples. He also organized the second expedition to Punt, which helped to refill the waning treasury. His departure from the sun god was in favor of the rising cult of Osiris, which would become wildly popular during the Middle Kingdom. Dejitkari Yusesi's fatal mistake was decentralizing the Memphis government. It was done in response to the dwindling resources available to the bureaucracy, aiming for a more efficient government. However, this placed even more power on the priesthood, ultimately undoing any earlier progress with curbing the priesthood's influence over Egypt's gnomes. Unas, son of Dejitkari Yusesi, was the last of the fifth dynasty's pharaohs. Little is known of his reign, but he is notable as the first pharaoh to exhibit the pyramid texts on the walls of his tomb. This was an early version of the Book of the Dead, sacred texts meant to instruct and protect the pharaoh in their journey to the afterlife. The famous weighing of the heart ceremony has its origins here. In ancient Egypt, the heart was believed to be the center of all knowledge, while the braid was considered a useless organ and was thrown away. While other organs were removed and preserved in canopic jars, the heart remained in the mummified body. It was believed that when the deceased reached the afterlife, their heart would be weighed against the feather of truth on the scales of Ma'at, Ma'at being the goddess of order and truth. Anubis, god of mummification, tended the scales. Thoth, god of wisdom, recorded the weights. Osiris, god of the underworld, and his sons observed the ceremony. If the heart weighed less than the feather of truth, the deceased was allowed into the field of reeds, or the afterlife. If the heart was heavier, however, then the deceased soul was eaten by Amit, god of divine retribution, and thus they suffered a true death with no afterlife. In other words, their soul was destroyed, and nothing was left of them in life or death. It was the ultimate and worst fate. These pyramid texts were influenced by the cult of Osiris, and their appearance signified the cult's rise in power into the Middle Kingdom, forever replacing the once barren stone walls of tombs with a myriad of religious artwork and hieroglyphics, meant to protect the dead and illustrate their journey to the afterlife. By the beginning of the Sixth Dynasty, the pharaoh's power had waned. Local officials were already building richer, more elaborate tombs than the pharaohs themselves. The first king, Teti, was murdered by his own bodyguards. Such a crime would have been unthinkable in previous dynasties with the power the pharaohs once held. Maintaining the funerary cults of past pharaohs required money, which meant more and more wealth being passed from the ruling class to the priesthood. The pharaohs were further weakened by the rule of Pepi II near the end of the dynasty. He came to the throne as a child and remained there for almost a century, marking the longest reign of any Egyptian pharaoh. While this might sound impressive, Pepi II did not prove to be a strong ruler in his declining years. The central government deteriorated, and the state of the country was made worse by a drought that brought famine, with no way for the weakened government to effectively aid its people. 
The old kingdom ended with the sixth dynasty, and local officials came to govern their separate gnomes independently, each heavily influenced by the local priesthood and their varying cults to the regional Egyptian gods. Following the collapse of the Old Kingdom, the 7th and 8th dynasties brought in the First Intermediate Period, which lasted between 2181 and 2055 BC. These dynasties consisted of weak rulers in Memphis who held no real power over the provincial governors. When the last ruler of the 8th dynasty passed, a civil war broke out between the various governors, each eager for more land and power. This civil war resulted in Egypt being split into two lands, just as in the days before Narmer united the country. The 9th and 10th dynasties consisted of rulers in Heracleopolis, controlling the land between Memphis and Thebes. Another family of rulers arose in Thebes, as this city increasingly became the center of religion in Egypt. The first intermediate period was brought to an end when one of these Theban rulers, Mentuhotep, overthrew the Heracleopolis rulers, reunited Egypt, and began the 11th dynasty. Our bonus segment for this episode concerns the legend of Osiris. This is one of the most famous myths in all of the ancient Egyptian mythology. Osiris was the ancient Egyptian god of the dead, but he didn't start this way according to the story. As it goes, Osiris was the first pharaoh of Egypt, alongside his wife Isis. He was a god even then, ruling in his divinity, a symbol of life and fertility. His brother, Set, the god of chaos, grew jealous of his power. Set desired the earthly throne for himself, and thus plotted to murder his brother. To do so, Set challenged his brother, claiming that he couldn't fit within a chest. Osiris took the challenge, climbing inside, only for Set to slam the lid and lock him in. Set then threw the chest in the Nile, drowning his brother. Afterwards, he cut the body into pieces, scattering them to the four corners of the earth. Isis grieved upon finding out about her husband's murder. She scoured the earth until she had found all the pieces, which she then put back together in the first ever mummy. The only piece she left outside of his body was his heart, which she placed inside of a lotus blossom. Lotus blossoms symbolized life in ancient Egypt, and as the goddess of healing and magic, Isis was able to bring her husband back from the dead. Osiris then became god of the underworld, overseeing all who had passed. In life, the pharaoh was seen as the living incarnation of Horus, the son of Osiris and Isis. In death, it was believed the pharaoh became Osiris, god of the dead. In this way, the pharaoh was deified and could claim his right to be the ultimate authority in Egypt, for it was he who mediated between the living and the gods, and it was he himself who was a living god. This showed the duality of life and death that was at the heart of all ancient Egyptian religion, with death not being the end, but merely an extension of one's existence. That concludes this episode on Age of Ancients, and if you tune into our next episode, we'll be continuing our study of Egypt's history with the Middle Kingdom and the Second Intermediate Period. You should also stick around for the bonus next episode. Thank you so much for listening, and stay safe out there.